So today we steal into the swamps to explore how Americans have been using their dark and uncharted depths to find paths to freedom since the 17th century. Free swamps. Hashtag free the swamp. Hashtag don't drain the swamp. (laughs) Hashtag reclaim the swamp. (laughs) Hello and welcome to the Baba Yaga Project. Hi, I'm Margo. And I'm Sonia. And we're historians interested in making cultural history and folklore accessible. We've made the Baba Yaga Project, which is a podcast, a YouTube channel, and a website to build a community and learn from the past together. We hope you join us for all of season three and subscribe to get notified every time we post. So, Swamp Day, part two. Swamp Day, part two. We finally made it. Woo! Through much trial, tribulation, and illness. Everyone was sick. Yeah. But now everyone's fine. And no one had COVID, so we did great. According to the mini COVID testing. According to the testing, neither of us had COVID in our separate illnesses. So I'm calling that peak performance. We did it. And today we're going to talk about North American swamps. Excellent. Crossing the pond. What? (laughs) Into the swamp. Into the swamp. (laughs) Find out what, what swamps, what swamps mean, mean, what, what? What swamps mean to people over here? Excellent. Yeah. All right. Well, let's take it away. (laughs) So what do they mean? What do they mean to people over here? Yeah. Because we had in my swamp episode about how they were, you know, seen as kind of dirty, nasty, scary places. How about you? Yeah. Here. How about here? So uh, pretty much. Mm -hmm. They actual swampland was not super inhabited right it fell within the like range of different nations that lived here but it wasn't like yeah we're gonna like live it up in the swamp makes sense because um, it's not a great place for people and of course europeans who were coming over and settling um in the 17th century came with the early modern ideas about swamps which was that they were not useful land and that it was like the divine duty of white people to drain them all out and create like arable land out of them because that's how you be a good steward to the land yep in the early modern period so essentially that is like the ideological policy around swamps for the whole early America period. Right. Basically up to the 20th century. Mostly people are looking at them as like dark and diseased and also um, in this period, especially like in the 17th, 18th centuries, is before um, the Eastern Panther is hunted to extinction. Right. So there's like cougars and shit in the the swamps like there's bears there's panthers there's i wouldn't have thought bears but i guess also yeah there's bears there's a lot of there's a lot of fish in there for a bear yeah yeah makes sense sense. so it's the swamps in north america tend to be really big especially like there's a few major huge swamps on the east coast um and that sort of like bleed into coastal marshlands and uh they're inhabited by things that will kill and eat people 
um, and a lot of poisonous snakes. I think this is probably another thing that's different from yeah, the UK. Very much There's so. like water moccasins are real common. Oh, okay. In swamps in North America, especially in like the southern U.S., so the Great Dismal and the Okefenokee, the Everglades, there's water moccasins in them, which if you don't know what those are, they're also called cottonmouths. They're a black snake with a white mouth. They live in the water, um, and they're dormant when it's cold. They like sort of hibernate, but all summer they'll be out, and you can't see them moving under the water, and oh. they'll bite you, and they have like a necrotizing venom. So your limbs will fall off. They're real bad. They, it, you can die from it. It's not... It's yeah, that's, that checks out. I wouldn't want to be near that. Not a good scene. Um, essentially, if you're if you're from Canada, I don't know if they're up here, but if you're no. from Canada and you go down south and you're Absolutely getting into a body not. of water, just be aware that if it is water you cannot see through and or there is a lot of brush in the water or it's very rocky and there's like crevices and stuff, that's just something to be aware of that... The snakes are in the water, and they will bite you, and it's bad. It's Noted. a bad scene. There's yeah. a lot of poisonous snakes in the south. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, they were, like, really, like, thought, conceived of as, like, dangerous places. Understandably so. And not useful for agriculture. And the big idea with, like, the founding of the U.S. and Canada was that uh, we we needed to create this tilled, arable, productive land from ocean to ocean. That, like, this was going, like, we needed to get as much of it, civilize the land, and create this, you know, amazing empire. Starting at the end of the 17th century, going into the early 18th century, there starts to be a lot of um, pushes to create these huge land surveys, and then to go in and start draining out swamps. A lot of these were super unsuccessful <laughs> um, because it's just like incredibly difficult to navigate places like the Great Dismal, um, which is in Virginia, on the border of Virginia and North Carolina on the East Coast, if you guys don't know where that is. Um, it's a huge, massive swamp. I think it's, it's like hundreds of thousands of acres in the 17th century like in its natural state before everything was i mean it's like the size of the everglades or which was like half of florida yeah initially big Um, big swamp and okefenokee is like you know a major part of southern georgia they're like these big huge things um louisiana is like 90 percent swamp so they're not like oh this one little wetland area over here it's like a massive part of the colony of Virginia is uninhabitable and scary and wet and gross. And I mean, like, really wet. Like, these were... You couldn't get into it because a a lot of it was... It'd be chest-high water. Right. Trying to get through in this, like, sinking, soaking mud. And there's, like, quicksand areas. Like, it's super dangerous. But because the ideology around these wetlands was that they are useless and dangerous um, and because it was so so difficult to get in and actually chart all of the land and then the the undertaking of draining these things would be essentially like draining something the size of Rhode Island you know like it's just huge massive undertakings that would have taken generations and generations and generations um 
they were just sort of left uncharted, just these big empty swaths on a map that white people, <laughs> or for what it, lack of a better term, or like the state or whatever, weren't going yeah. into. And um, for the better part of American history, historians have thought these areas were uninhabited. But it turns out that that's not true. Um, There were very large communities of Maroons living in these areas. And this is a term that comes from the Caribbean. And generally, historians thought that this was a a phenomenon that mostly only happened on Caribbean islands. Um, So Maroon comes from the term Simaroon, which is a um, Spanish word. I pronounced that wrong. I pronounced it like it was French. (laughs) Anyway, Simaroon. Uh, which is a term for livestock that has gone feral. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Really Love like that. a classy thing to um, <laughs> call yeah. a human being. So, so uh, and this then was a term that was used for people who had self emancipated and fled into a part of a Caribbean island that was uninhabited that people couldn't get to and created these bands of people that could not be governed and re-enslaved. So this was really common in places like Bermuda, Jamaica, um, and was believed that because of the makeup of the geography of the United States proper and because of the patrol systems and policing systems that existed in the South especially, that there were not maroon communities. But there's been a lot of recent archaeological surveys done, and they found, especially in the Great Dismal, which, like, people still, it's very, very hard to, like, navigate through. Yeah. Um, there are uh, remnants of large settlements oh, of wow. people who freed themselves. So. The narrative before this was that some people would move through the edges of swamps as part of the Underground Railroad. Now that narrative is having to be shifted toward a significant portion of people who emancipated themselves fled to the centers of these spaces to just continue to live there. Um, So in the Great Dismal Swamp, which is in Southeast Virginia, Northeast North Carolina, this was an especially uh, prosperous place for people to like get through. Um, The vegetation, especially on the edges of the swamp, is too thick for you to get horses or canoes through. Mm -hmm. So the patrols couldn't get in to find anyone. And the settlements that they found seem to have been established in the mid-1600s by Native Americans who were fleeing the colonial frontier. Um, So we've talked about the issues of frontiers and uh, white squatters, European squatters, in previous episodes. This is a similar thing. Um, So these aren't necessarily people fleeing enslavement, but rather like raids on their towns and settlements. And then through word of mouth, those settlements becoming places that are welcoming to uh, refugee slaves. Um, And eventually, so by like the 1640s, it seems that uh, the archaeological evidence suggests that 
in the Great Dismal Swamp community, it was almost entirely uh, emancipated, like self-emancipated slaves by that point in time. So even before you get to the 18th century, um, the Native American populations have moved fully out of the swamp to the other side of Virginia and are like getting further and further away from the frontier. And this is now home to Africans and African-American descendants of slaves. And we have some like written evidence that there was a knowledge of these communities, but not like really how how large they were. In 1728, William Byrd does the first survey of the swamp. He didn't get all the way through it um, and found, quote, mulattoes living there. Um, and then later, a British traveler goes to a maroon town and says that there are people who have, this is in 1780, 84 that they have been living there for at least 30 years and that they're surviving off of swamp corn hogs and fowl um, and that they've cleared small fields around their settlements on that are up on higher ground but they're staying really far away from the edges of the wetlands essentially not having any contact outside of the swamp right and there's an oral account from a man who grew up in this swamp community. So the, the it also doesn't have a name because there's not a written record of it. Mm-hmm. And the archaeologist who's running the project to like unearth all of this stuff to do the archaeological dig doesn't want to assign a name to it because he's like this white archaeological guy. And he's like, these people would have had a name for it. We don't know what it is. So it's yeah, site place, unnamed site in X, Great Dismal Swamp. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But there was a, a man who grew up there and after the Civil War eventually made his way up to Canada and was interviewed and talks about life growing up there. And they were so secluded from the rest of the United States that they had a different, a totally different essentially like functional language they had an english creole that they spoke there and also there were people who lived in the community who had never seen white people before and so there's this whole folklore (laughs) that they had in this swamp community about white people because of like you don't want to leave the swamp you don't want to go to the edge of this place because you know like you will be enslaved but like they hadn't actually seen what white people looked like yeah yeah, so these are just like just like trying Americans to living in Virginia, yeah. and never, and like trying to explain to a child like, okay, yeah. this is what this person could look like, and they're yeah. like, what are they what now? <laughs> yeah, and that's fascinating. and that's happening while like government of the colony of Virginia is actively trying to drain that swamp. Yes, so like that's how huge this place is. There is a site there, um, the Washington Ditch, which George Washington in 1763 formed a company. It was the first company to attempt to drain the Great Dismal um, and use its timber. And this excavation was started by enslaved people. So like all of the labor that this company used was enslaved people. And this was mostly just like digging these massive like miles long trenches Um, and these were in the absolute worst conditions that you can possibly imagine so it's chest high water 
um, 100 degrees Fahrenheit in summer, the snakes, mosquitoes, and the mosquitoes are so much that someone standing like um, six meters away from you could appear fuzzy oh, because of the clouds of mosquitoes that are in between you. And then in the winter, it is freezing cold. And again, you're still in this water. Yeah. Um, so. And I just want to quick ask, and the mosquitoes are carrying diseases, I assume. Yes. Right? Like, I'm not yes. sure what what would be in Virginia at that time, like yellow fever or yellow malaria? Yellow fever, or malaria. Both. Yeah, no, both of those. Oh, fun, um, fun, yeah. Yeah. Just wanted to ask. I wasn't yeah. sure about disease prevalence in that time and place. Yeah, so that's um, most of the people who are enslaved in the continental U.S. are not coming directly from Africa. Right. Right. If you learn about the triangle slave trade, people were taken and then taken to uh, the Caribbean and some other parts of like South America and would be there on sugar plantations for a few years, which are, if anything, worse conditions than what I just described. Yeah. Um, And anyone who survived like three years there would then be sold to plantations in the U.S. because that would be like absolute worst conditions and an introduction to all of the diseases that are common in North America. And it was this (laughs) literally termed seasoning. Ah. So it was a period of seasoning. And if you survived the seasoning, then you could be sold other places i did not know that didn't i didn't yeah super gross again i i live in the middle ages where bad stuff happens also but like i don't know not like systematically in the way i mean in (laughs) there's i mean there's also systematically bad stuff going on i'm not gonna lie to you but that's just like (laughs) huh didn't know didn't know about that one I just, every time I think I've heard all the bad things that happened in, like, the transatlantic slave trade, then someone gives me another fact about it, and I'm like, no, it's even (coughs) worse. It somehow gets worse every time. Yeah, so with digging this ditch, right, with digging the Washington ditch, which is a thing you can still go and see because it's, like, used as a road now, I think. Yeah. Like, it's not paved, but to get into the like national forest the great dismal swamp is like a national forest now yeah um so you can like go and hike or whatever but right it was really common for the people who were doing this work to die in the midst of doing it obviously yeah but slaves in virginia and north of virginia when working off the plantation site were chained together oh no Normally, what would happen was people would either get bit by something or you'd get hypothermia or heat stroke or whatever and fall and you're in this chest high water and then you would drown and then you would be chained to these other people. And so it was like not uncommon for multiple people to drown because they couldn't carry the weight of the person that they were chained to. And the overseers were just like, well, that sucks. But it was such intense and horrifying labor and the wealth of timber and possibly arable land that they would get out of it was worth more than the cost of replacing people. Wow. 
I love this podcast so much. It's such a fun time. So, yeah. Oh, and it, Oof. yeah. But, right, this this plan to drain the Great Dismal didn't work, obviously. Like, they spent years and years, like, trying to dig the stitch, and it didn't... It was just too big and too much, and they got quite a bit of timber out of it, but not enough for the um, company to stay afloat. The canals that they were building, these ditches and canals that they were building, created some other issues for the people who were living in the swamp because the the canals essentially allowed slave catchers to get into the swamp and be able to navigate a little bit easier. But it also um, sort of opened up connections between the maroon settlements and the outside world where some of these companies who were selling the timber and stuff would essentially just look the other way if people who were living free in the swamps wanted to sell them the timber. So do the labor and everything and then sell them the timber. So they started selling shingles uh, for companies that turned a blind eye to people who were supposed to, like, legally supposed to be enslaved. You know what? That's good for them. Good Um, job. This communication with the outside world allowed for them to create more systems for helping people to escape slavery as well. Um, It opened up communication between the maroon communities and actively enslaved peoples. Um, Before the end of the Civil War, Nat Turner's plan relied heavily on recruiting maroon communities to help everyone sort of hide after the insurrection. Obviously, like, that didn't work out because... It was crushed and he was killed. But as, like, these plans to try and drain wetlands across North America developed and turned into these companies and, like, people started actively working on it, the communication between people living in swamps and the outside world became more of a, like, firm thread. But by the end of the Civil War, people were essentially, like, we don't have to live in the swamp, we don't want to, and left. Fair. And so there's not really any evidence of people living at these in these communities after the 1860s. But there are other people who did continue to live in swamps. Um, for example, in Florida, the peoples who are now known as the Seminole. Mm-hmm. The Seminole are a indigenous community, but they're a nation that is like a conglomerate of pre-contact nations. It was a a large group of people who were part of the Mississippian culture, and they had their first contact with the Spanish. The The Spanish tried really hard to like try and take over Florida. They were grossly unsuccessful. If anybody has read anything about St. Augustine, the fort there, it was just a series of, like, awful experiences for the Spanish, and eventually they just, like, gave it up, and were like, the British can have this. Following that and the American Revolution, we move into, like, more resistance by the people of what is now Florida. So we have the Red Stick War and the Creek Wars. Um, Andrew Jackson participated in both of those and then was later elected president and signed a removal act to have all of these people, the people who became known as the Seminole, removed. But the Seminole people 
fled to the swamps instead. They refused to be removed, and that's where they get the name. Uh, it's Yatsiminoli, mm-hmm. which means free people. Um, and so that was a it was a conglomerate of these groups who spoke similar Mississippian right. languages, um, and lived for multiple generations in the swamps of northern Florida. Essentially, the Removal Act was signed in the 1820s and was enforced through the 1840s. So this was a longer, prolonged campaign than the Cherokee removal, which took place over three years in the 1830s. Um, This was like a a 20-year campaign to sort of root people out and ended up failing. And part of the reason that this failed was because they like fled into these like the northern Everglades of Florida, and they lived in small traditional camps of cypress frame or palmetto thatch chickies, Mm -hmm. which, yeah, like tiki huts, essentially is what it looks like. (laughs) They were essentially isolated from the rest of Florida society until the 20th century and lived these traditional lifestyles in these swamps until the 20th century when there was like this big campaign to drain the Everglades. Also, because of industrialization in cities in Florida, it became a lot harder for people to live these traditional lives because the pollution was affecting the crops and fishing numbers and droughts and increasing hurricanes and all of these things became really, really difficult. So essentially by the 1920s, there was a collapse of the frontier seminal economy that threatened the entire society with assimilation. But in 1938, the U.S. government granted 80,000 acres of land to the Seminole as protected land in the Everglades. And in the mid-50s, scientists start to really realize that draining the Everglades was a bad idea. It was horrible for the ecosystems of like the entire continent. More and more uh, movements were created to protect the Everglades and make sure that the Seminole people could continue to live this traditional lifestyle that they had developed inside the Florida swamps, which is pretty cool. That's Um, super cool. And there's another major southern swamp community, and that's in the Okefenokee Swamp. These people have a very different history. I get to explain the term cracker. (laughs) Delightful. Someone's going to get big Um, mad because... The Twitter discourse is like, that's actually the exact same as saying the N-word. And I'm like, shut up. It's <laughs> like, not. And it's honestly all of your, not even really that, derogatory. And even if it was, I'm begging you to stop. <laughs> and it's not derogatory this. to the people that like they think. It's, yeah, exactly. it's functionally no. hillbilly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so the Okefenokee Swamp is a 700 square mile swamp in southern Georgia. And it means the land of trembling earth, and it was functionally uninhabited until the mid-18th century. In the late 18th, early 19th century, the Okefenokee Swamp is settled. And my favorite part of the sentence I'm about to read is that I wrote it 
word for word directly from the Georgia Center for Folklore's page. Fantastic. This is exactly what they said, that in the late 17th century, early 19th century, the swamp was settled by crackers in a self-sufficient community. Excellent. (laughs) The term cracker has a... There is a idea about where the term comes from and the actual etymology seems to come from the irish word crack which is spelled Mm c-r-a-i-c which means an entertaining conversation or like banter at the pub yeah that kind of thing so that's where the term comes from and it was a name that was applied to scotch irish settlers of the southern backcountry so it is specific white people generally like not wealthy and settling in like appalachia and it was a name they got from being great boasters <laughs> so it's just loudmouth white people yeah so that's what cracker means it is not like yeah, it's not related to like slave overseers. It's not related to slavery. It's not, about it's not anything. Being white and, and it was yeah. a term that white people used to talk down to other white people as well. Yeah, like hillbilly or redneck. Yeah, the you know quote yeah. unquote white trash basically. Yeah. yeah. So it's like that. So this is specifically Scotch Irish. Anyway, these are my white. people. <laughs> so the Scotch Irish of Southern Georgia who are a bunch of loudmouths. You know, there are worse things to be known for. So, the Okafenoki was, like the other swamps that we talked about, it was a refuge for indigenous people, fugitive slaves, eventually deserters of the Civil War, and people who are just sort of hiding out in general. But the Okafenoki Swamp had the smallest African-American population of anywhere in the state of Georgia. It was essentially just this one community initially they were cowboys which is a weird thing to think about doing in a swamp but apparently was for a really long time the main use of these kind of like semi-wetlands because you couldn't grow anything on it it uh, often really sandy and you could use it for grazing then in the wetlands surrounded on the Carolina Gold Coast, so where Charleston is, right. these were all places that were inhabited by Scotch-Irish cowboys. And in Okafenoki, they really sort of became very isolated and self-sufficient, where they would only interact with the outside world like to sell the cattle, and that was pretty much it. They were part of a specific type of Baptist denomination. Oh, the Primitive Baptist the Primitive Baptists have a specific type of singing, <laughs> and it comes from like the shape note singing, which is a way to teach singing in church. They created this very distinctive style called sacred harp singing that you can still, if you go down to Okafenoki to any of the like cultural events that they have around there, you can hear it, and there's these like really specific stories that they've built up there it's also a population of people that do a lot of yodeling again because of the cowboy thing that's how you like find people and call your cattle back through the swamp in okafenoki there's large amounts of honey plants like tupelo gum so if you've ever had tupelo honey it's a big thing in the south 
Van Morrison has a song called Tupelo Honey. I am unfortunately too Canadian to get this reference, but (laughs) I'm sure some of our listeners will get it. This is for you. Honey, honey, honey made from bees that have fed on the Tupelo gum trees and people kept bees specifically around these things. There is this story about this guy who made odd insects and his... The, the story is that he crossed bees with lightning bugs so that they could see at night and thus make twice the honey. Okay, but that's <laughs> genius. Work smarter, not harder. Unfortunately, though, um, so a lot of these, these cultural traditions were documented by the folklorist Francis Hopper. The Hoppers created um, this book that they like documented everything, and like there's a bunch of records of it. It's called the Okefenokee Album. It was published in 1981, but they really pushed for the establishment of the Okefenokee National Wildlife Refuge in 1937, which required the relocation of all the people in the swamp and so essentially like disbanded this culture that they worked for 50 years to like record uh, in this like weird kind of roundabout oops yeah. didn't see that coming thing yeah. but the the culture that comes up there and in these other areas where they had this cowboy culture is really interesting you know we talked earlier about like the great dismal and how it was essentially seen as just this huge waste of uh, North Carolina and Virginia landscape but in South Carolina and northern Georgia South Carolina in particular is established as a different kind of colony from Georgia or Virginia, the Carolinas were established as a company. Right. And so the people who were giving out the land grants were really pushing to try any kind of crop. And initially it is just like cowboys and a lot of these cowboys are enslaved peoples. And through some sort of people trying to like create subsistence crops they start figuring out how to redirect the wetland streams to be able to flood fields for rice and this is the crop that ends up making charleston one of the richest cities in the world right coming out of the 18th century these Gold Coast wetlands is where you have another totally distinct uh, community that people might be familiar with, which is the Gullah Geechee people. Gullah Gullah Island. Like Gullah Gullah Island, yes. See, that's a reference I know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, Gullah Geechee is a, uh, it's m- mostly only spoken on the islands off the coast of South Carolina, but it was sort of this whole region of rice plantations in the low country of um, South Carolina, there were these massive plantations that were worked by enslaved peoples, and the enslaved peoples created an English-based creole. It's one of the like few remaining English-based creoles in North America, and they were able to preserve more of their African culture than many other Black enslaved communities, even within the South, and created a really distinctive food culture based around the rice that they were growing. So it's super cool. If you're in Charleston, you can hear Gullah spoken. If you go to the markets, the women who do the sweetgrass braiding yeah. uh, often speak Gullah. 
and there's a bunch of restaurants and stuff. It's super cool. And then the uh, the islands on the coast were other like maroon communities where people like were able to flee from the plantations out to these previously uninhabited islands. So basically, what I'm getting from all this <laughs> yes. is please do my summary. Swamps in this context are being used as this refuge mm-hmm. for just like a variety of yeah. So the main culture people. of the U.S. is seen all of these huge swaths of wetland as waste, yeah. as empty, useless, dangerous spaces. But in practice, for you know, hundreds of thousands of people, the wetlands of North America are of a refuge and a place to create and build new cultures and distinctly American cultures as well. They're havens for maintaining indigenous cultures, for African-American communities, for people who are trying to carve out a space where they can live without, you know, like having to be part of these like oppressive economic systems that are so prevalent, especially in the southern colonies. Um, so that's where you get like the, the people who are living uh, in Okefenokee. Right. So, well, anyway, that's been great. And this is more pro-swamp propaganda. Yes. From the Babiaga Project. Don't drain the swamp. <laughs> Don't drain the swamp. Go hang out in it. Exactly. It's a cool place. Reject modernity. Embrace tradition by going into the swamp. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. This project is made possible by our patrons. If you liked what you heard here, please check out our YouTube channel, our social media, and consider supporting us on Patreon. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.